Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 185 of Mason Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, and I will be your host for this installment of the podcast. Joining me tonight are various contributors from the Amazing Avenue family, but first up, I have a conversation with my co-host Chris McShane about a number of topics of interest to the Mets in this past week. So without further ado, I think the topic on everybody's mind, at least on my mind right now, is still the Bartolo Colon home run from Saturday's Mets-Padres game. Uh, Chris, what will you be telling your grandkids? Where were you when Bartolo hit the home run? I was where I am sitting right now, which is on my couch in my living room. I was definitely tuned into the game. It was a Saturday night, but the Mets are good and I had a busy weekend the weekend before, so I had no hesitation about just sitting at home and watching baseball, and I'm very, very glad I was. So, yeah, I was I was sitting here on the couch with my fiance, who's, you know, she, she knows the game, but she's not into it like uh, we are, or, you know, and I, we're, we're on certainly the, <laughs> the far end of the spectrum, but, you know, she, she got 
what a big moment it was and was, you know, sort of inquiring like why it was such a big deal and why I was freaking out. I mean, for me, it was just, you know, Gary's call was perfect. I went back and watched it like six times on DVR. Uh huh. And my, I was texting as if the Mets had just made it to the World Series. Yeah, I, I was sitting right where I am, which is uh, in my little office in my house, and there's not a TV in here, and my uh, my wife was watching something on TV, and I was going to tune into the game in a couple of innings, but I was just getting some work done, and my Twitter feed exploded, and so I missed it, and I was, I was very upset that I missed it, but of course, you put on the game, then two seconds later, they're going to show it a hundred more times, and right. uh, I had been DVRing the game, so I just run, run the DVR and watched it, and again, my wife... You know, grew up a Mets fan, but isn't as rabid a fan as I am. But she understood why this was, you know, such an incredible moment. And it was, uh, you know, my phone started blowing up with friends texting me. And it was, it felt like one of those rare moments where every single baseball fan recognized how amazing it was, Mets fan or not. But if you were a Mets fan, it was especially sweet. And uh, Gary's call was just so great. Yeah. And I, I you know, this isn't. I'm not trying to brag here, but <laughs> I got to see him hit one of the batting practice home runs that he hit in spring training when I was down there. And I videotaped every other session he took that day, except the one in which he hit that <laughs> home run. So even just following up, you know, this was uh, about a week, week and a half after Mark Craig had tweeted that he saw one. And that was a big deal, and and so I, you know, I wasn't even breaking new ground here, but but the reaction to that was amazing, and you know, a handful of people were wondering why I didn't have anything to to, you know, share with the rest of the world. <laughs> but the way it worked out, I'm glad. I would rather people see it in real life against a pitcher than you know off a batting uh, or a pitching machine. Of course, uh, you know, off the mound in spring training. Which don't get me wrong, it was magnificent. <laughs> but I'm glad that I didn't play spoiler to that, you know, that, that in no way only a few people who were there in spring training saw him do that. And, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't have wanted to diminish the moment <laughs> at all for the very little, you know, sliver of humanity that would have seen something that I tweeted. Uh, well, that, that tweet would have definitely gone, uh, Oh yeah, pretty big if that if that had gone out there. But you're right, you know, to see it in the game, especially the Mets had just lost the two games beforehand, and you know, people were getting a little bit, I think, frustrated by a not very good Padres team beating the Mets, and then to have Cologne hit the home run in that game just made it even sweeter. You know, yeah, it, it was just a, it was a wonderful moment, and you know, the, this is Cologne's third year as a Met, and I think. At least for me, he's exceeded all expectations of what I thought when they signed him two years, three years ago now, you know, to a deal. I thought he'd be a serviceable back end starter. I never imagined the amount of joy he would bring my life, (laughs) which sounds really silly, but he's just been so great. And it's been so nice to watch the entire Mets fandom rally around him. He's probably, I would say, he's probably the most popular Met. I can't think of one person who dislikes him or who likes somebody even better than him. Everybody is like, they love Bartolo and there's their favorite below Bartolo. He's just, he's something really unusual. And, you know, the Mets kind of have a history of picking up odd pitchers, especially odd pitchers older in their careers. You know, you, I mean, later in their careers, you think of, you know, R.A. Dickey, you think of Oral Hershiser, 
You think of El Duque and Levon Hernandez. You know the, the Mets have been a a pretty popular spot for pitchers in the twilight of their career to come spend a few years. And between Dickey and Cologne, we've gotten the best of those possible scenarios twice now. Yeah. And, the, you know, on opening day, he comes in and he gets an ovation that's on the level of pretty much anybody else. And coming off a season where he had a, you know, his ERA was a little over four in the National League in 2015. You know, that's not that good. Uh, and, and I know he went and played a different role in the bullpen in, in the uh, postseason, and he did well there. And people definitely have a longer memory with things you do in the postseason than the regular season. Mm-hmm. So I get all that. But strictly based on performance, you know, the the guy who came back off of his total – total uh you know body of work last season that's not the guy who's getting you know the louder ovation than Noah Syndergaard and Matt Harvey on opening day right and and you know and for that matter you know it's uh there's something special there for sure yeah and he was the uh co-player of the week for the National League this this week with um Ben Zobrist from the Cubs and you know Cologne this season has you know he looked good. He hasn't looked unhittable. You know, he hasn't looked the way he, the way, you know, 2002 Cologne looked, but he's been a really serviceable part of the rotation and he's kept the team in games and he's, he's just so much fun to watch. It is watching him pitch is unlike watching anybody else pitch, especially because the rest of the Mets staff are such young, high flame throwing pitchers. And then there's Cologne with his one pitch. And just hitting the corners and not walking anybody, and it gives you just such a different look. It's uh, it's really fun to watch. Yeah, it is, and it you know it's it's a different sort of sensation I think from Dickey, where you know obviously Dickey was throwing such a unique pitch, and Bartolo is just throwing you know ninety percent the most average balls. pitch you can throw, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, I know there's variations of it and some of them move a little bit differently than others, but you know, that, that's what he's doing. So they, they have that in common, but there, there's so much more predictability, I think, when you're watching Bartolo mm-hmm. from a fan standpoint. And that makes it more fascinating when, when things are going well, you know, when R.A. Dickey throws nasty knuckleballs, I understand like, oh, hey, yeah, that, that looks like, that looks like that would be really hard to pick up and make contact or make good contact with whatever, uh, you know. But Bartolo sort of he he doesn't make it look that way. I mean, that the pitch just doesn't lend itself to that sort of reaction. Uh, and you know, I mean, obviously, the overall the results haven't been quite as good as what Diggy had done. But but yeah, it's it, it was a nice passing of the torch, I think, to go from one to the other. Absolutely. Uh, you know, backing up um, Cologne and the other Mets starters has been a really, really quality Mets bullpen. I don't think anybody at the beginning of the year felt the bullpen would be the Mets' Achilles heel, that it would constantly keep them out of games, but I don't think anybody expected them to be quite as great as they've been. There is not a pitcher in the Mets' bullpen that has more hits than innings pitched thus far, no um, no member of the bullpen has given up more than two home runs, and those two home runs come from Logan Verrett, who started two games. 
So that's you know taking into account a much higher inning count than some of the other relievers. Nobody has walked more than they've struck out. Uh, it's been a really, really nice season so far for the bullpen. So why don't we do this? Why don't we pick uh, kind of one person each that we want to talk about for a second? Who's been your bullpen MVP so far? Well, before I go to my bullpen MVP, I just have to point out that Bartolo is technically the leader in bullpen ERA for the Mets because he <laughs> he's got he had one appearance and he didn't allow any runs. Uh huh. Opening day, right? Uh. First game of the season or second game of the season? I think it was the second. It, it was definitely in Kansas long. City. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, and I feel like I should be able to answer that easily. It was, uh, yeah, no, April third. It, it, it was, it was opening day. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, who's your bullpen MVP? I think, I think I go Reed. Mm-hmm. If only because I think he was sort of underrated a little bit at the time that they traded for him, and you know, I mean, we're picking among a very good group. At, you know, at, right now, none of them have an ERA over three point one two, and and that's Blevins. And you know, for that to be the worst one of anybody in the bullpen <laughs> is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and and Reed, as we record, is at three even. Which isn't spectacular, but it's certainly good. Uh, but the strikeout rate is really high. The walk rate is low. You know, he's doing the sorts of things that you would have hoped he would do when you looked at his home and road splits at the time of the trade. Um, and I don't know. There's just something about him. I, I think it might date back to having him on fantasy rosters, you know, three, four years ago, whatever, where, you know, it was sort of this distant guy who now is on the team. Uh, and and he's lived up to it. I mean, obviously his last appearance in the World Series did not go well, but since he's come over to the Mets, it you know he hasn't been quite the Joanna Cespedes of of relief pitching, but he's been really really good. So I think that's my guy. Um, with the caveat that I like all of them right now uh, pretty equally, but there, there's just some you know something there with Reed for me. Uh, my, my answer is kind of similar to that in terms of uh, I don't know if this is necessarily the the best pitcher on the staff right now, but I had this guy on my fantasy team for two years running, and he was quite, quite useful for me. And it's just such a great story. I'm going to talk about Jim Henderson for a second. Um, you know, picked up literally for nothing. You know, he was going to be the just a guy you give a minor league contract to and you invite him to spring training, and he's he threw incredibly well in the spring. And then aside from Terry almost blowing out his shoulder early in the season, he has looked quite good since coming up, you know, during the regular season as well. Again, he has 17 strikeouts against five walks in 11.1, in 11 and a third innings pitched. He has, you know, he gave up no home runs. He's just, you know, he's, he's striking out 13 and a half per nine. He's just looking, he looks like he did three or four years ago. And I don't know what the secret is there. I don't know if the Mets saw something in him or if he was simply just a flyer they took. But it's been really great to see Jim Henderson doing as well as he has for the Mets. Yeah, there's a story that I had heard, and I don't know that uh, whether or not it was 100% accurate. It very well may have been. Uh, but if it was, it was the story. It was basically that as soon as 
Jim Henderson was available along with a whole bunch of other players. But as soon as they were eligible to sign contracts in the offseason, that the Mets were like right on top of it. Like, you know, the, the clock strikes midnight and they call his agent expressing interest in, in getting him signed to that minor league deal. Uh, so if that is true, that would sort of, you know, line up with what you were saying, the possibility that they saw something that all of a sudden they really liked and, and wanted with him. I mean, I'll admit, I was a Henderson doubter. You know, it, Weren't we all? Yeah. I, well, I have one good friend uh, who, who was on board from day one. Going into spring training, he goes, that's my guy. You know, he, he might lean a little towards Terry in terms of proven closer track record, that sort of thing. Uh, although I guess I did just pick Addison Reed, who <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so who am I to talk? But uh but yeah, I, I was a little bit of a Henderson doubter. And then I was really worried after the uh the appearance where he threw the day after throwing so many pitches the night before and the velocity went yeah, I mean he just he that day he was completely gassed. Yeah. But he's but with good reason. Right. Oh yeah. But he's he's climbed back from that. Both, you know, the performance has been fine. The velocity has been actually slowly ticking up since that day. Um, so I, I'd say that's a good choice. Yeah. What's also exciting to me is if you look at the uh, the age of the bullpen arms, Henderson's the oldest guy at 33. It's a relatively young core of players. You know, Familia's 26, Reed's 27, Robles is 25, uh, you know, Verrett is 26. They could keep this core together for a little while and do it pretty cheaply. Now, obviously, relief pitchers are very volatile, and predicting the next 60 innings, as Jeff would always say, is you know is foolish, but it's nice to know that there's a chance of these guys being Mets for a while and being successful for a while. Yeah. Yeah, the, you have that certainly with a few of the guys who are here already, and one of the nice things, I mean, they haven't had to dip into it at all yet, but there are a few guys in the minors who could be valuable major league relievers. I mean, two of them were last year, Gilmartin and Goodell. And, you know, they were the odd men out to start the season. And, you know, I, they, they, I, it was nice because the Mets could basically not make a bad decision right. when it came to those roster moves. And I don't want anything to change. Things are going so well. Uh, it, you know, I don't, I don't want there to be a reason for somebody else to come up. But, you know, if somebody tweaks a hammy or turns an ankle or whatever and needs to just miss a couple weeks, we're not going to be in panic mode about who's going to come up and replace them. I mean, we're Mets fans. There'll be a little bit of panic mode, but... Well, yes. I I, I, I tried to do uh, a Panic City. I tried to avoid saying <laughs> it, but... <laughs> you have to. Yeah. And speaking of Panic City, there is a small sliver of Panic City, a neighborhood in Panic City, let's say, that is worried that the Mets are hitting too many home runs. This sounds like a crazy person's <laughs> position, but there are people out there who are really worried about the Mets scoring such a high percentage of their runs uh, via the home run. I know as of the start of play yesterday, I think it's true still, the Mets are leading the, the majors in home runs, correct? Or at least leading the National League in home runs. Yeah. And... uh Chris, do you see any reason to be worried about this? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I. That's my short answer. I mean, it's 
the the whole thing, you know, if you're worried about situational hitting, right, and runners in scoring position and all that sort of thing, one nice thing about a home run is that, you know, if a guy's on first or if there's nobody on, uh, the, that runner or batter gets to score without ever having to stand on second or third base, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's by hitting that many home runs, you 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 end up limiting the number of times you get to hit with runners in scoring position or you have fewer runners who, who end up there. You know, theoretically, if every home run the Mets had hit had been a double, uh, then each each of those guys would be standing on second base. And then we'd have more at-bats with runners in scoring position to, you know, overanalyze. Right. <laughs> I think one of the really sort of not talked about but really valuable pieces of data we can look at with home runs is just how much it actually prevents injuries on the base pads as well. You know, a ball hit over the fence is not going to create a potential collision at home plate. It's not going to create a takeout slide someplace. It's not going to, so no one's going to tweak a hammy because they're trying to round third and score. It, it takes so much pressure off of the base runners that it's just good for team health to hit a lot of home runs as well. And that's a small factor, maybe, but I think it's one that doesn't get mentioned all that often. Yeah, it is nice to go at your own pace and, <laughs> you know, not not have to sweat it. And that's that's sort of, you know, that's sort of the beauty of it. And, and it's, uh, I don't know, I just... It, we, we, I'm too I'm too happy about it to really wrap my head around <laughs> the the flip side, but you know I I get the the constant worry, and you know I think we specialize in that as Mets fans, uh, and I think most teams have you know sort of that segment. Actually, I would, in terms of the neighborhood of Panic City, with the home run, you know the home run. I'm not going to say haters, but those who are not thrilled with not scoring runs the other way? Are they like the home run hipsters? Is that? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, they're, they're probably the ones who were into home runs, you know, 10 years ago. But right. Na- but now they're passe. Yes, home runs, home runs got too big. Yeah. And look, I can almost understand it if the Mets were only hitting home runs and never anything else. There was never anybody on base except if they're rounding the bases for a home run, but that's just not the reality of the team. It isn't. There's still people are still hitting, people are still drawing walks. It's you know, is it frustrating to see a man on second stranded or a man on third stranded? Absolutely. Would I trade a little more luck in in running runners with scoring positions but take away the home runs? No, I wouldn't. I will take the home runs every day. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I thought Jared Diamond uh had a, a decent point uh, the other day he was tweeting about it and he sort of is in this interesting position where he switched from Mets beat to Yankees beat as the home run tendencies also <laughs> changed in the other direction. You know, it wasn't drastic and immediate in terms of the teams, but you know, it, it was a big Yankee thing not that long ago right? to be talking about this topic. Uh, but his point was that pitching is so good now just generally, you know, I mean, the, the, the Mets pitching is exceptionally good, but 
you think of the number of teams that have at least one or two dominant pitchers in their rotation and their bullpen. Uh, so his point was essentially with that kind of pitching, it's really, really hard to hit, have, you know, have a bunch of smaller hits in, in an inning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the home run was sort of the, is the only surefire way to score. And that's always been true, obviously. Right. Regardless. Yeah. We were talking before we started recording about we were trying to find data that was like easily sortable to see the teams that led the league in home runs each year, and that data was harder to come by than it probably should have been. Uh, but we were looking at it, and with the exception of, was it the 2013 Orioles, I think? Just about every team in the last 10 years or so that has hit the most home runs has been a good team, and most have made the playoffs. And in 2009, the number one or number two home run hitting teams face each other in the World Series. So I, I think that the fear that you're going to hit a lot of home runs and not win a lot of games, that's a pretty unfounded fear. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think that's fair to say. I know the booth likes to, although I think they do it a little less mockingly now because the team is actually hitting the home runs, but the time that Sandy Alderson stopped by years ago and he, he said that line that look if you out homer a team in in a game you win 75% of those games you know i think that was what he said if you know it's something very very close to that if not that yeah yeah so i know they like to sort of bring that up in a in a tongue in cheek kind of way but i i don't think alderson was wrong no certainly not <laughs> um and yeah it's i think we touched on this a little bit last week too on the podcast but it's just nice that you have guys who are capable of doing this throughout the lineup that's the other thing too this isn't a team that is like if the 2016 braves came into the season and were just hitting home runs out of nowhere you'd you'd say oh man you know i don't know if this is sustainable right they're gonna fall back to earth eventually Right. Now, obviously, they're the extreme example in the other direction. But, you know, it, when you look at the track record of the players who are on the team, you know, the Mets have guys who can hit home runs. That's uh, That was one of the things to look forward to about this season. And, you know, Neil Walker was never going to hit 70, obviously. But, <laughs> you know, there, there's some regression in both directions to uh, to the career numbers. You know, Lucas Duda took a little while to come around, and now he's – you know, he, he's hit a few. Maybe Cespedes really is this good. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's it's not a bunch of guys hitting home runs out of nowhere. It's a, it's a bunch of hitters who have shown they can do it. And even though none of them, aside from Cespedes in a Mets uniform, none of them are, you know, on that Edwin Encarnacion or, you know, Jose Bautista level where you expect 40 home runs, or Chris Davis, I should say, too. Uh, you know, no one player is at that point. Every one of them figured to come into the season and hit double-digit home runs. Yeah. That's a nice optimistic place to, uh, to end our conversation, I think, for now. So uh, thanks, yes. Chris. Sure. Hey everyone, this is Steve Schreiber, and it's time for your This Week in SNY Minute on Amazing Avenue Audio. So, of course, the big story in Metsland 
this past weekend was the incredible, unbelievable, outstanding, I'm out of descriptive words here, uh, two-run home run by the legendary Bartolo Colon. So there's really no uh, clip from this past week that could outdo uh, Gary Cohen's call on Bartolo's home run. So without further ado, here it is. Colon looking for his first hit of the year. He drives one! Deep left field! That goes Upton! Back near the wall! It's out of here! Bartolo has done it! The impossible has happened! The team vacates the dugout as Bartolo takes the long trot. His first career home run. And there will be nobody in the dugout to greet him. (laughs) This is one of the great moments in the history of baseball. Bartolo Colon has gone deep. I want to say that was one of the longest home run trots I've ever seen. But I think that's how fast he runs. (laughs) And now they'll flood up the tunnel and give him his just due. His 226th career (laughs) event. You knew if he ever made contact in just the right way, he was strong enough to do it. And now Bartolo has brought down the house. Wow, Gary really hit that one out of the park. Anyway, that's about it for your Twisney Minute. I'm Steve Schreiber. Back to Amazing Avenue Audio. That is certainly one of the best calls of Gary's career and an amazing moment for Mets fans everywhere. Coming up now, we have Chris's chat with Eno Saris, who is a writer for Fangraphs as well as Beergraphs. He's a friend of the site and is a really interesting guy. So enjoy this conversation between Eno and Chris. Joining us now in Amazing Avenue Audio, it's Eno Saris. Longtime readers of the site will recognize his name from Amazing Avenue itself. But if you uh, if you're new to the site over the last few years. You've seen him mostly at Fangraphs, which is his home base. Uh, he, he's done a lot of writing there over the years. Occasionally, he's had things on ESPN Insider, Fox Sports, uh, and I might be missing some other things. And he's working on a book, uh, A Craft Beer Lover's Guide to uh, uh, to Baseball. Baseball. Baseball stadiums? Yeah, baseball. Yes. Yeah. So you know, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's, I can't believe it's my first time. I mean, a uh, former AA guy coming back. Yeah, yeah, I, I, me neither. We'll, <laughs> we'll just we'll have to blame Jeff for that one. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So well, I guess let's start with purely baseball stuff, uh, and then you know, and then go into the beer, but. Pitchers are sort of the thing that you've specialized in. You know, uh, the pitch grips have become your thing uh, over the last couple of years. You know, pitching is as dominant now as it ever has been. And certainly Mets fans are, you know, all about pitching right now. So I guess from that experience that you've had and all these things you've written, you know, what, what are some of the big takeaways about pitchers and the way they operate and and 
you know, just what's going on with them right now? And is there anything that you think, you know, makes them as good as they are generally today? I mean, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, uh, you could point to, to PEDs and steroids, uh, but I think there's other things going on because I think there are a lot of pitchers taking steroids too. So, um, you know, one of the most prominent things is probably the uh, embiggening of the strike zone. Uh, you know, if you look around, um, John Rogale has done some work on this at the Hardball Times where he basically said that the stat cast, not the stat cast era, but the, the Quest Tech and the, the Pitch FX era has uh, created um, – such a exact strike zone that that umpires are now calling pitches at the knees that they didn't used to, and uh, so that creates uh, that creates more strikes for them. And, and pitchers want to want to throw it down there anyway. So ground ball rate is up, strikeouts are up, called strikes are up, uh, balls and walks are down. So I think that's that explains. And they actually tried to figure out how much of the offense, the offensive downturn, that could explain. And I think they came up with, you know, 35 to 40% of it could just be the strike zone. So I think that's one thing. And then if you look at uh, velocity, it's increasing. It's increasing in the bullpen. It's increasing among starters. And I think part of that is they're asking starters to go fewer innings. So starters are now just sort of throwing as hard as they can until the, they take the ball away from them. I mean, that's that's what Hector Santiago said, you know, his velocity boost came from was just – Deciding to throw as hard as he could until until you know his five innings were up. So, uh, and then the increased specialization of the bullpen means you come in, you throw six pitches sometimes, and uh, it's easier to get six pitches up to ninety eight than it is to get you know sixty or, or one hundred and twenty or back in the day one hundred and sixty. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, another you know thirty percent maybe just velocity alone because velocity is huge. And then the last part, I don't know. I mean, there's there's more. Maybe there's more stuff. Maybe there's, there's, you know, as the game evolves, there's more different kinds of pitches. Splitters were a new thing at one point. Now splitters are an old thing, and cutters and uh, sinkers and two seamers. I mean, everything bends and cuts, and everyone's trying to get more movement. So, you know, I, I would have to say that that's some part of it too. Yeah, the uh, the Warthen slider certainly falls into that category, and. Yeah. You wrote about that, and you, uh, I thought one of the very interesting pieces that you had recently was the one where you tried to create a new pitch. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, you know, it, I, if people haven't read that yet, I certainly encourage them to, to go check it out. But, you know, what what was that process like, uh, you know, just coming up with it and sort of working through that? Well, I think it's probably along the lines of what a pitcher might do uh, more intuitively if he was uh, trying to invent a pitch, which is just look for what kind of movement doesn't really exist in the game. And um, I was thinking about change-ups, and change-ups, like, generally, they sort of, you know, when we talk about arm side fade, when you throw a change-up, it sort of fades towards your pitcher's arm side, but it doesn't, if you think about a, a curveball, it it's got that real big hump and it drops a lot, you know. But there's nothing that you throw that looks like a curveball but goes the opposite way, right? Uh, and that's probably because it'd probably be pretty bad for your arm. And uh, you know, so I was I was asking around like, how could you get a ball to do that? Colin McHugh had some ideas. Trevor Bauer had some ideas. 
Dallas Braden had an idea, and he actually modeled me his true screwball, which is basically a changeup where you pronate. You, you basically pull down uh, on the inside of your hand so hard that you kind of pull that ball down, you know, and make it um, uh, drop as much as a curveball. So Braden used to actually have one of those true screwballs that kind of looks like a, a curveball but going in the changeup direction, except that, you know, he did that so much that I was sitting next to him on a panel and his arm is like permanently turned inward. Yeah. And, you know, when, when he went into the surgery for his shoulder, Dr. James Andrews said, this is worse than I've ever seen in a shoulder. And why? And, you know, they talked about it and he said, probably because of that crazy pitch you throw. So, you know, Braden said, whatever. You know, I wanted a career, so when I got back out there, I started throwing it again. <laughs> but uh, and so maybe that piece was a little bit dangerous because you know how many maybe a bunch of people are going to try and throw that. But you know, the Bauer version didn't seem as dangerous to me, which is basically if you're an over the top guy, you can basically get your release point all the way, you know, as far over the top as you can to the point where it's almost like a lefty's release point, and then you're basically just throwing a curveball as a righty, but from a lefty's release point. So um, that actually happens a little bit. I, I think it, you know, I had a pitch actually where if, if you guys ever see, um, uh, who's that guy on Arizona? Pitches way over the top. Got a real funky delivery. Oh. Uh, um, yeah, I'll find that out. But anyway, he there is a guy who has a super over the top. And Bauer used to be more uh, super over the top back in the day. Um, so there, you know, the more over top you are, the more you can throw this thing, uh, that's kind of like a, what I call a reverse curveball. but, um, uh, Josh Colmenter, he actually, sometimes his curveball goes the other way. So it, it, you know, it's kind of funny cause I did this whole thing trying to invent a pitch and then found out that like two or three guys actually, you know, throw this pitch, but right, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, still, still was fun to do. Yeah. So when you walk into a clubhouse, is it just oh that's that's the that's the guy he's you know he's coming to he's coming to talk to me about the you know my grip and all that stuff is there, <laughs> is there that reputation at least in the the ballparks that you're at the most frequently? Uh, well, Matt Cain once said, "There's this guy." It says somebody else said, "There's this guy right. who comes around with the numbers," <laughs> uh, <laughs> which uh, I know that Matt Cain doesn't love me so much. Um, there. You know, Stephen Vogt calls me Stat Boy, and uh, there's a little bit of that. What I'm finding actually is the ones who do place me uh, like like my questions, like that I talk about strategy and baseball, and not um, you know outside of the line stuff. And um, you know, what I'm the most interesting thing that's happening this year is now players are starting to come to me with questions. So, you know, it happened once last year. Andrew Haney pulled me aside and, you know, he said, you know, it was kind of funny because that whole stuff was going down about Mike Sosha not being into stats. Right. And Andrew Haney pulled me aside and said, hey, man, can you tell me some more about spin rates and where I can read about them and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I tried to give him some pieces. and uh, uh, But now it's even more, uh, more like that. Uh, Jed Lowry came up to me, you know, breathless and was like, I hit this pitch into this launch angle and this exit velocity in this park and this happened and the same thing in another park. And, 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 and. and he had, he's like, can you go research that for me? Can you go find out about this? So I'm doing a research project for Jed Lowry right now. So 
Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like it. I think one of the enjoyable things about your, you know, uh, your rise through the, the baseball writing ranks has been your openness and, you know, you've written about stories of, of interactions with players, you know, stuff that I don't think you get to see from every writer. Uh, and that's, it, it's cool to see, you know, cause obviously we know you at the site and everything. Uh, but you know, going through some stuff and, you know, being in, uh, I, I forget which player it was and I should have looked it up before we recorded this segment, but there was a the player. Osborne Moustakis thing. Well, yeah. Was that, was that the forgotten name? Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I mistook uh, Hosmer for Mustakis. Right, right, right. And, and they, yeah, they, uh, they 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 heckled me while I interviewed Billy Butler, and that was a that was a low point. I, I it was obviously my mistake from the beginning, and uh, I just tried to kind of you know when I wrote that piece, tried to definitely tried to make it not like oh Hosmer and Mustakis are bad guys. It was more like right yeah you, know, you know they didn't really act that well but i didn't really you know do the right things either and you know here are my mistakes and here are their mistakes and here's you know something that we can be learned from it and you know i i stand by that and actually what's interesting is i never thought there was a place in the game for me in, in terms of working for a team right but that piece and um i don't i don't know if you've heard of big data baseball it's or is that it yeah big data baseball is by travis sawchick it's a it's a book about the pirates, and you know that came out, and everyone was reading about Dan Fox, and Dan Fox was um, a guy who was in the front office, but worked with the players and sort of interacted with them, brought them things, took things from them up to the front office, and became sort of a conduit. And I think more and more teams are looking for that kind of person, and you know, all of a sudden, I've, I've actually talked to some teams about being that kind of person. It's just. Uh, tough in terms of uh, specifics and you know they baseball wants a lot out of you for not much money and they want you to travel a lot of days for for them so right um i i, I we haven't found the right fit yet but it does and now all of a sudden i'm like well you know i could do that where because i think of players as a resource and i don't mean it in like a mean way i i, I, I think as players have been neglected as a part of the research process have been neglected as part of the you know, uh, the process in terms of uh, strategy and making the game better. You know what I mean? I think, you know, a lot of stuff gets put on them. You know, there's there's front offices that come up with ideas and put it on them. I mean, the reason why the Pirates have made the shift work so well for them is because they started in the minor leagues and they made it a thing that everybody in the minor leagues knew. And they, they, they put Dan Fox down there and they said, talk to Dan Fox about it. He can explain what you're, what, you know, extra hits you're, you're taking away and this and that and uh, why this works for you. And if you have concerns and if you want to talk about whether or not you should pitch into the shift and that sort of stuff, then talk to Dan Fox and he can answer your questions. So, you know, they made, they, they made the players part of the process and Clint Hurdle was a part of that. And uh, I think that's why they've been so successful what they do. And I think, you know, teams are starting to look to, you know, it's a copycat league like any other. They're looking to, to kind of do that sort of same thing. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point overall because, you know, one of the things we've heard about Noah Syndergaard this year, uh, I, I think it was Andrew Beaton with the Journal who, who wrote the story. If I got that wrong, I, I apologize to the person who did. But, uh, but. Syndergaard's always asking questions, that kind of thing, right? But if you think about it, not everybody has that personality necessarily to maybe ask a million questions about what's going on and how to be better. But you have to think or, or you know that these guys, every single one of them wants to be better 
all the time. I mean, otherwise they yeah. wouldn't be where they are. So, yeah, and I think that sometimes the guys who aren't asking a lot of questions are, you know, it's actually funny that Syndergaard is that way. That means to me, that's a really good sign, I think, for his longevity in his career because um, there are going to be tough times in his career. You know, uh, there are probably going to be injuries as, as much as nobody wants to talk about it. There's probably going to be adjustments, and there's probably going to be days with, you know, years when he doesn't have the same velocity. So, you know, he has to think ahead, and it's great to hear that he's asking these questions. A lot of times the guys who don't ask questions haven't struggled yet and those are actually my my toughest interviews because if you haven't struggled yet you haven't gotten to that point where you're like oh i really need to you know i really need to figure something out here i really need to talk to people i really need to you know kind of change it up you know and and baseball is so good at creating struggle for you that oftentimes it's not it doesn't take that long you know right uh, but there are guys who just come up and dominate for two, three, four years, and then have a real hard time adjusting um, when when something goes wrong. So yeah, with Syndergaard, maybe it's almost a good thing that he had that year in Vegas that just you know. Oh, uh, from yeah, from a lot of perspective, you know, I, I talked to him at the um, at the Futures game that year, and I said, you know, Vegas that sucks, and <laughs> he laughed, <laughs> and uh, he said I was trying to develop a piece because. I think Vegas is kind of uh, has you know these these problems with it that are that go beyond just the Vegas itself. Like I think that it can create a mindset in a pitcher that that can lead to bad outcomes, and um, and I think that anybody who's playing there will. Uh, oh, look at this! R. A. Dickey coming to bat. Uh, nice. That's um, but it, you know, <laughs> Vegas Vegas will create uh, unintended consequences and just weird weird uh things where the pitchers are tr- trying not to pitch to vegas but then will but with Ve- with the Syndergaard, it was a good sign that i think for his future that he said you know the chain the, the curve wasn't working that well so i just had to spend you know games working on my changeup, and my changeup got better and so in that case there was a guy who went to you know vegas and said what can i learn while i'm here because this place sucks right <laughs> 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 Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, it, it was. Uh, I, I thought from the beginning when I talked to him that it was that uh, I liked the, the head on his shoulders. And you know, sometimes um, that clubhouse. Uh, you know, when when David Wright was out, um, there was some leadership in that clubhouse that didn't have the same sort of accountability that David Wright exudes. You know, uh-huh. and. Um, there were times when I, it was just a real pain to work that clubhouse, and I'd I'd go in and hope to talk to one or two people and just not have anybody really, you know, stand in front of their locker and 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 look up and say what's going on, you know. And um, so I was really worried that maybe Syndergaard would take that cue and go with it, but he's always been open, uh, and I can tell from the kind of stories that are coming out about him. Uh, I read a great story about that Worthen slider, about the that hard slider that Dan Worthen uh, teaches. Because I I talked to Syndergaard and he said, yeah, you know, I'm bringing it in here and there, and I've, I've fiddled with it to fiddle with the spin rates on my curve. Um, so you know, I'm aware of it and I'm trying to incorporate it. He never told me that he was going to like feature it this year, but you know, I'm not around the team as much as some guys. But I read a great piece. Uh, I think Kevin Kiernan wrote it about uh, Nuke Lelouch and. Uh, holding the the ball like an egg, 
and uh, how that helped him understand Dan Orthon's slider best. And and I was like, yeah, yeah. So there's a guy who's actually willing to talk to the beat writers around him and, and you know, have a normal sit down and talk about, you know, baseball type stuff, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, so I think you can kind of see it when these little features come through. Like the funnier and quirkier and better the feature is, the more that player was willing to sort of open up, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, I think you can. It, it sort of filters in. And Syndergaard is a, is a is a great young man, and uh, you know he's a little bit misunderstood for that. You know, meet me at sixty feet, sixty feet, you know, six inches comment. But um, you know, everybody's competitive when you get in the game. I mean, I don't even blame Bryce Harper for going all nuts the other day. I mean, when I play basketball and and you know we're getting into it and it's a competitive game and I the blood is rushing to my head. You know, I've yelled at people for calling fouls on me, and I've, you know, shouted out and, you know, grunted and fouled people hard. And, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's testosterone. It's, uh, it's hormones. It's competitiveness. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, I've certainly been there Uh, overreactions to, (laughs) you know, pick up games, not even, you know, nobody's making the call, just, you know, you feel like you 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 know you did something either right or wrong, and it doesn't go your way. Yeah, and and you lose it a little bit. Yeah, and you know, a lot of times for them, there that that sort of competitiveness sometimes comes off the mound with them. I mean, Hunter Strickland is a is a guy I love talking to in the in the Giants clubhouse. You know, throws ninety nine. Uh, had a real weird uh, postseason against the Royals, where he was yelling at Salvador Perez and. Uh, you know, all that stuff was going on, but you know, he just been taken deep, uh, you know, and he was, had the blood rushing through his veins. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to sort of shrug at these things. It's, you know, it's just, they're just being about ball players, you know, we, we don't want them to be inhuman, you know? Right. So, uh, as much as I could occupy the entire podcast talking pitching with you, I'll switch gears a little bit and go over to the beer side. So beer graphs. Your your other home on the internet, uh, with uh, with Michael Donato, you know, Sitar. Yeah, yes. So if you're a Mets fan and you've been on the internet, you're you're familiar with him as well. Uh, so what what's the book? You know, what's that looking like? Uh, you know, uh, it certainly sounds like something that I'm interested in picking up. But uh, yeah, it's going to be an ebook, uh, just a real cheap little fun thing where. Um, especially good for for like a travel because what we're going to do is it's called the craft beer lovers guide to baseball and uh, what we're going to do is basically for every town in the major leagues we're going to detail the best beer you know best beer bars best breweries uh, around um, you know the city in the city and then you know right next to the ballpark and in the ballpark so just basically a beer guide to uh, each of the 30, well, they're not 30 cities, but uh, each of the 28 uh, cities in baseball. And, um, you know, it's just a real simple thing. I think we're going to have some leaderboard aspect to it because Beer Graphs has these nice sortable leaderboards. So we're going to have some leaderboards, and uh, we're going to have um, sort of a, like a map aspect where you can kind of uh, look at the map and see the spots that we're writing about and say, oh, you know what, I'm going to do this little pub crawl where I, you know, walk from this area, you know, the, the Baltimore one, I have a pub crawl where you can kind of 
you know, get crab in the Inner Harbor and just walk your way towards the ballpark and, and hit up, you know, two or three beer bars along the way. Um, so, you know, it, it, by making it, you know, a, a cheap thing, it's just like for the ha- cost of half a beer, you can make sure you have good beer uh, on your trip to Baltimore or whatever. So uh, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the thought behind it. And, um, you know, Citar is going to write, Donato is going to write the New York chapter. Uh, I, and I, what I've done is I've collected recommendations from beer and baseball writers for every city. And so it's going to be Donato's opinion plus, uh, you know, various writers, uh, from the internets and, uh, and sort of quoting them and then some stuff from beer graphs about what beer graphs think is, is the, you know, our, what our, you know, uh, leaderboard and our proprietary stats, what they think are the best beers in these towns. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a uh, one of the better things that beer graphs can do, which is my hope in going into it was uh, with better numbers and you know some of this stuff is still in the future. We need more data and we need to we need to find you know find out how to get better data. But um, as we do that, you know, make it easier for people who like this beer or like that beer to find out you know what other beers they will like and what. Um, you know what? Uh, if they're if they're on the road and they're in Phoenix, you know where they can go. So that's the that's the idea for me. Not so much arbiting. You know, when people look at Fangraphs, it's the same idea at Fangraphs. When I look at uh, at Fangraphs, a lot of people are like get focused on WAR and wins above replacement and a lot of that stuff. And I'm like, that's just one stat on there, and it's like one of my least favorite stats on the site. And it's the same thing at Beergraphs. It's not so much for me about you know, necessarily, you know, getting the number one beer in America right. It's more about being able to sort these beers in, in different cities and different states and use it as a sort of research tool uh, when you're on the road and that sort of thing. And, and to, to find out stuff, like we did some research where we found that the more alcohol is in your beer, the, the higher the ratings go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, ratings and ABV are are, cal- are are correlated. I think that is sort of obvious because you're like, oh, this is a good beer. <laughs> <laughs> right, but, yeah. Uh, you know, just, I, I, same as at Fangrass, like, you know, I, I very rarely write about wins of a replacement. It's almost always about, you know, a mechanical change that someone's made or, a, uh, you know, a pitch uh, change or, or some, you know, strategical thing in the game, you know. Yeah, to, to your very first question, you know, I wrote a piece today about Josh Donaldson saying that pitchers are all quick pitching, and that it used to quick pitching used to be this thing where you don't come set and you do it to 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 screw with the runner. And so much of much of the the, the writing in the rule book is about um, how the runner uh, isn't. Uh, you know, this is all about the runner and and blah 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 and the stretch and all that. And uh, Donaldson was like, it's not about the runner anymore. People aren't stealing bases the same way anymore. It's about deceiving the batter and messing with our timing because batters have more and more complicated, you know, swings where they're trying to leverage themselves for power. And he said, if you can't time a guy, then uh, then he's going to be taking advantage. And, you know, he showed me a Jake Peavy one, but, you know, Bartolo Colon and, um, and Johnny Cueto are, are well known for doing that sort of thing. So... Uh, that's that could be part of your first question about offense being down. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as far as the breweries go, I don't know if they were open on your last time you were here, but uh, I'll give a plug to 
the two new ones and, and then the third that moved, but uh, Gun Hill Brewery here in the Bronx, Bronx Brewery, yeah. and, and Chelsea Brewing moved out of Chelsea Piers and is now operating up here as well. So as interesting as a Mets fan in the Bronx, I'm uh, I'm very happy and, and proud to live in a borough that now has these three breweries. Yeah, that's amazing. I've I've had uh, I've had some Bronx brewing. They're pretty good, uh, but I'm really excited to try some Gun Hill while I'm in town. Uh, yeah, yeah. Their uh, their Void of Light Stout is sort of the yeah. the most acclaimed, uh, but you know they I've I've had a variety of styles there and. You know, I mean, they make good beer. <laughs> yeah, I do some trading, so I've had um, I've had some other half and Grimm, um, and some Captain Lawrence. So that's more uh, some Jersey, and um, I think other half and Grimm are New York. Uh, just, well, well, Captain Lawrence is Westchester. Oh, okay, and then um, and aren't other half and Grimm, but then that might be New York City. They're just like upstate New York or Brooklyn yeah. or. I'd have to I'd have to check. Yeah, but uh, anyway, those 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 have been pretty good. Um, and then you know, Six Point I think is uh, you know almost like New York's Lagunitas, where it's just uh, uh, you know like a established brewery that makes really good beers, high res, and you know, and resin I think are really really nice beers. So um, you know, I, I like Six Point too. So. I think New York is uh, is almost underrated. You know, I mean, people don't think of it. You know, it's more like Massachusetts, Vermont, and San Diego, and um, and Portland. Um, you know, and a little bit of Houston. But uh, uh, I think New York's coming out. Obviously, they had some issues with, um, you know, some of the laws were not very conducive, especially in Jersey. And um, I think we can blame. Uh, you know, some old school thinking there when it comes to the legality of breweries. Uh, but I think they've changed a lot of those laws, and uh, things are getting better, and uh, the breweries are good. So I'm excited to come and visit. And uh, I do want to plug, it's not all set in stone. I need to figure out when exactly it is. But I want to make sure that uh, Amazing Avenue people are there, because I love Amazing Avenue. Uh, it's one of the you know reasons I'm writing it all for a living, because Eric Simon reached down and got me um, when I was writing a blog called God Bless Buckner on the... Uh, <laughs> fanball network and uh you know part of working for amazing avenue and uh, working for jonah carey bloomberg sports and working at fangraphs allowed me to take a chance at, at being a um, a full-time writer so uh, amazing avenue is always going to be in my heart and um, i hope that people come and visit i think on the 18th i think that is the saturday before uh, Father's Day because we're going to be out uh, in mass Fangraphs is for a Staten Island Yankees uh, game I think uh, that they're going to um, they're going to do some fan like sort of Saber Day at the park. Oh uh, right, yeah, yeah, I saw so, their uh, promo about that. Yeah, so we're coming to town and I'm going to try and do a meet up the day before that Saturday. I think it's the 18th, maybe at Rattle and Hum, but it'll be definitely it won't have to be out in Staten Island. We're we're going to be in the city. So we're going to come up with a, a spot. That, and if anybody has recommendations for a spot, hit me up on Twitter. It's E-N-O-S-A-R-R-I-S. And uh, just looking to sort of carve out a little space for us to uh, to just drink and uh, eat and uh, talk baseball. I love, I love doing those meetups. I, when I first did a, a meetup to see Stanton debut, um, and I think uh, Strasburg was pitching that day too, and I did a meetup. Um, what's it? There was a little bar in Chelsea that's above a five guys. Uh, that I, think, I don't know. <laughs> I think there was some Amazing Avenue 
uh, people there too. That was a long time ago. So yeah, I know. I remember we did one, or, or you had put one together, but I attended. So the, we we were at one uh, in the village, but that was a little bit later. Um, uh, yeah, I might have gone back to that place, but um, yeah, I gotta I gotta find a place. But I hope I hope to see people. I'll see you, man. It's been it's been a while, and uh, it's really good to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. And thanks for coming on. Looking forward to the the uh the beer guide and you know the rest of the season of uh of watching the Mets and Yeah, can you believe it? They're they're good. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> it seems like it's been so long. And just like and Conforto turned out to be as good as we thought he was gonna be and uh just all the pitchers have been so good. It's just it's amazing. I mean yeah. the, the fact that they even like put that deal together to bring Cespedes back and it's just some of it's so unbelievable you know the day that they traded for Gomez right uh, you know I it was such a crazy day because the more I write about baseball the more it becomes a job it's not that I'm not passionate it's just that uh I root more for stories and for people I've written about and stuff like that rather than unnecessarily teams the same way Right. So I've been I've been thinking that like oh my fandom is not on the same level. But the day they traded for Gomez, I ran around the friggin' house. I mean I was <laughs> I was yelling and screaming, and my wife said, "What is going on with you? What is happening?" And I said, "The Mets did a great thing. They got a center fielder, Carlos Gomez. It's amazing. We need this." And then when it fell apart and they lost that game in the rain, right? <laughs> I just I I. I was inconsolable, man. I thought that was the death of my fandom. And then the whole Cespedes thing and just the whole run through the postseason. I mean, it's indescribable, you know. It's the – when you wait that long and you and you, uh, and you you feel – and the, the LOL Mets thing, it's just like you feel so laughingstock at, at points, you know. Right. And so it's like to, to, to kind of turn that around is just an amazing feeling. Indeed it is. Well, uh, we'll we'll end on that. I think it <laughs> that's a good note to go out on. So, thanks again for coming on. You know, yeah. Thanks, thanks a lot, and uh, thanks for having me on. This is the part of the show where we would normally be answering emails, but this week the only emails we got were not really. Uh, how can I put this? They, they were meant for, for Chris and myself. They weren't really meant for public consumption. So uh, we welcome those kind of emails, but we really want the emails where we can talk about the Mets and what's going on with them. And so please email the show at podcast at com. We would love to talk about any and all things Mets, as well as other weird stuff, I'm sure. We'll get some questions in the bag that aren't quite Mets related, but that's okay too. So coming up right now, we have Noel Purcell, who's going to talk about a prospect that he thinks we should be paying attention to. And uh, a funny bit of coincidence, last week, about 10 minutes before the show went live, somebody emailed us about David Thompson, who was last week's prospect that was focused on. So with any luck, tomorrow morning when this posts, we'll be getting an email about P.J. Conlon. So take it away, Noel. Hey, guys. So the player I want to talk about today is left-handed pitcher for the Columbia Fireflies, P.J. Conlon. P.J. stands for Patrick Joshua in this case. So if you're wondering, yes, he is Irish. Uh, actually, very Irish. He was born in Belfast. Um, 
Then he pitched for University of San Diego, the Toreros, uh, from 2013 to 2015. Mets took him in the 13th round last year, and he has dominated since getting to the minors. In his career at San Diego, uh, he held a 3-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Um, his senior season, or junior season rather, his final season, though, had, he had a .97 whip. Um, with a 3.28 strikeout-to-walk ratio, and since getting to the minors, that ratio has skyrocketed. He's a little bit, he's been a little bit old for his levels, all things considered. Uh, he played short-season ball with Brooklyn last year after getting drafted, pitched 17 relief appearances, struck out 25 in 17 innings, and walked just two, giving up eight hits uh, for a solid .59 whip. Um, so this year is his... Uh, first full season in the minors, and he is starting now. And through six starts, he has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, he in 36.2 innings, he's got a 1.23 ERA with 29 strikeouts and four walks. So out 35 hits with so total, he's got a 1.06 WHIP. Um, he's striking out 7.25 for every one he walks, um, and he's. 5-0 if for some reason you like pitcher wins. Uh, he's full starting now. Since his first start, he's thrown at least six innings in every start uh, and is probably the nominal ace of the Columbia rotation right now. Um, he's, like I said, a bit older the level. He's 22 playing in A-ball, um, but he likely seems, if he keeps pitching like this, he'll get promoted soon and face more even-level competition. Uh, the six-foot left-hander, originally from Ireland, is a guy to look out for, for sure. Um, he's not overpowering by any means, but he gets strikeouts, for sure, and controls the strike zone really well. Um, tends to be a very smart pitcher, all things considered. Um, so yeah, hopefully somebody will get a chance to scout him sometime soon and give us a legit report. Um, and he's definitely, just based on statistics, a guy to watch. Hi, I'm Aaron York, and let's talk about two Mets hitters who are really important to the team right now and probably will be in the future. The first guy I want to talk about is Yoenis Cespedes. You might have heard of him because he's really awesome. He was seen as something of a savior last year when he he did not single-handedly carry the Mets to the playoffs, although it did seem like that. Although in reality, a lot of players in the Mets started hitting really well after the Mets acquired Cespedes at the July 31st trade deadline. But what we're going to talk about now is how he's improved his walk rate so far this year. Although it's only a pretty small sample size, he's had 117 plate appearances as of this recording on Wednesday afternoon before the Mets play the Dodgers in the third game of their series in Los Angeles. But the point is, Cespedes has been even better this year because he's walking 11% of the time compared to his 5% walk rate all of last year when he split time with the Mets and the Detroit Tigers. In that season, he hit 291 with a 328 on base percentage, and so far this year he has the same 291 batting average, but his on-base percentage is 
376, thanks to the fact that he's not chasing as many pitches out of the zone. We know early in the season he had a lot of trouble with that high fastball, and it was really frustrating. But lately, he's been more selective, and that has paid off. Not only is he getting on base more, but he's hitting for just an incredible amount of power. His isolated slugging percentage is 379 for us. That's his isolated, so his total slugging percentage is 670 with 11 home runs. This guy has been just incredible, and I guess it speaks to what Kevin Long has been able to do. I know the Mets hitting coach is going to get a lot of credit for what Cespedes has been able to do at age 30 when you don't expect hitters to decline yet, but you don't expect them to undergo changes like Cespedes might be doing if his walk rate keeps up. But still, he did come to the majors a little late, or he came to American baseball a little late since he he was from Cuba. When he broke in in 2012, he was around 26 years old. So this is still only his fifth year in the big leagues. And if, if, if a player is breaking in at 22 and they're at their age 27, you expect them to start to start to peak. This is Cespedes's fifth year. Now, avoiding any talk of how we don't always know how old players are when they come from other countries, the fact is Cespedes is in his fifth year where you'd expect a player who came through and a major league farm system when they're in their fifth year, you expect them to be peaking. So maybe this is what's happening with Cespedes and he could approach or even surpass the 35 home runs he hit last year. That would be really something if he did that. We don't know if it's a con- it's, if it's going to continue, but either way, he has just been a fun hitter to watch develop and whatever Kevin Long is doing, whether he has this much effect on a hitter is up for debate, but it's working, and the Mets signing Cespedes to a deal in the offseason that might not have been below market value. It was below market years because we expected him to get five years, that he gets three with the opt-out after one. It looks like an amazing deal because he looks like an even better player this year than he was last year. The second guy I wanted to get to was Kevin Ploiecki, who was thrust into the starting lineup not too long ago when Travis Darno went down with a shoulder injury. Now, as Mets fans, we're all concerned about Travis Darno and if he's able to actually remain healthy for a year. That is something really concerning, but those fears can be alleviated a little bit if his backup, Kevin Ploiecki, who was a first-round draft pick out of Purdue not too long ago, he was picked in 2012, same year that Cespedes' first year in the majors, so that's another thing to show you how relatively inexperienced Cespedes was. His rookie year was when Kevin Ploiecki was drafted, and that wasn't just Cespedes' rookie year. That was his first year playing in America, so there's also the cultural stuff to deal with, and we we can't measure how that affects him, but it could have some kind of intangible effect on him getting accustomed to the major league game. But back to Ploiecki. He didn't hit much at all last year after he broke out in 2014 at double A. He hit 326, 378, 487, showing some power in about a half season of 
double A. He was promoted to triple A later that year. Looked like he could really be an asset for the Mets going forward, but he's called up in 2015 and gets some plate appearances, a good deal of plate appearances because of the injuries to Darno and only hits 219, 280, 296. A pretty disappointing debut for a guy who in 2014 looked like he could be a, a real future asset a la Paulo Duca or someone of that ilk for the Mets. But now 2016, he's into the lineup again. Darno is hurt again, and Ploiecki starting to hit his stride a little bit. He hit a home run against the Dodgers, his first home run of the season. He's walking a little more. He's cut down on the strikeouts. Again, only 61 plate appearances, but he's walking 13% of the time, striking out 18% of the time. Maybe we start to see the power that he showed two years ago in double A a little bit more. And right now he's got a 344 on base percentage, only 346 slugging. But if he's going to be the starting catcher or even, or if he's going to be the backup catcher, all you can ask of a big league backstop these days that he gets on base and doesn't hurt you too much offensively because getting serious, impactful offense from a catcher these days is is pretty rare. And, and we know the Mets throughout their lineup, especially the middle infield this year, we've been able to or the Mets have been able to get offense from a lot of different sources. So if we see catcher is kind of a bonus this year, just having Plawecki get on base and not hurt the Mets like he did during his plate appearances last year when he was he was below replacement level at the at the plate, that would be really good for the team if he just can maintain getting on base, not striking out too much, and occasionally hitting the ball to the park. He's definitely a player to watch, especially after another injury to Darno makes us question if the starting catcher is ever going to be healthy enough to help the Mets over the course of a full season. So, Joanna Cespedes, Kevin Plawecki, two guys who Mets fans should really want to keep an eye on as we're moving forward. Cespedes because he's possibly even better than last year. I know I didn't expect that. And then Plawecki because... If he's able to get on base and hit for a little bit of power, it puts the Mets in a much better situation than they are in if Darno keeps getting hurt and they don't have a good backup to put in his place. So I'll sign off for now and back to the rest of the show. I'm Kate. Today we are going very old school, it appears, because I have been assigned Eddie Brassoud. I still look up how to pronounce his name, because that's kind of confusing. He played just one year with the Mets in 1966 at the age of 34. He played 133 games. I've never heard of this guy before, but that's okay because it was 1966. He is actually 60 years and exactly one day older than me, which is kind of fun. And that's my math for tonight. Um, we I was actually assigned him because the Mets have, other than last night when, yes, Bartolo Colon hit a home run, I'm still not over it, have not been hitting all that great. And we've had, in the last week, a few instances of one player breaking up a no-hitter far too late into the game. 
So, Ryan assigned me Eddie. I'm going to call him that because his last name is strange. Because he was one of the first Mets to break up a no-hitter deep into the game when you're actually starting to count it and MLB at bat is sending you stupid alerts about it. In on September 30th, 1966, this is when the Mets were still really bad. At this point, they are 27 and a half games out of first place against the Astros. Eddie broke up a no hitter with no outs in the top in the bottom of the ninth with a double to left. And the best part is that the Mets still end up winning that game somehow. There was a wild pitch that drove him to third, and then the second hit of the game was a single, which scored him on a walk-off. Which is fun. The Mets did not win either of the games that they broke up their no-hitters with lately, including Matt Whistler, which I saw that was a miserable game on Tuesday, on my birthday, actually. But this was a good game. Um, He didn't do a whole lot else. He hit... 225, 304, 360 in 133 games with the Mets. He's not really a bat first guy. He mostly mostly played defense. Um, started it short a lot. Also played third and first and second. One of those utility guys the Mets liked and then didn't like and then liked again. Uh, kind of fun. Played mostly with the Giants. I found a really cool video of him throwing out first pitch with Willie Mays a few years ago at a Giants game. Played the Red Sox and then Cardinals, where he finished his career. And then he apparently went on to manage the minors and scout, which I like. I like those baseball guys who just don't give up on baseball. He was an all-star in 64, a World Series champion in 67, decidedly not with the Mets, because once again, they were still bad at this point. But he seems like a fun guy, and he broke up a no-hitter and won the game. So thank you for that, Eddie. Hey listeners, Steve Seiper here, and it's time for our very first Nippon Hand Fighters update on Amazing Avenue Audio. This week, the fighters went 3-2-1. That's right, in the MPB, they have ties. So they won three games, they lost two, and they tied one. The story this week, and I'm sure it's going to be the story of many weeks to come, was Shohei Otani, the fighter's 21-year-old ace. Many of you probably recognize the name. Uh, a couple of years ago, he used going to the MLB as leverage during the NPB amateur draft. Well, the right-handed pitched two games this week, starting on Saturday the 1st against the Chiba Lot Marines, and on Sunday the 8th against the Cebu Lions. Otani gave up four runs against the Marines, all of them coming in the bottom of the second, but he righted the ship and went on to blank them for the rest of the game, throwing a complete game. He needed 138 pitches, giving up four hits, walking four, and striking out ten. Against the Lions, he labored a bit, needing 119 pitches to get through six innings. In those six innings, he allowed four runs on ten hits and a walk, though he did strike out ten batters. With the Two 10-strikeout games this week, that gets him 18 double-digit strikeout games in 64 career starts, which means that he struck out 10 or more batters in almost one-third of his career starts. It's pretty special. <laughs> what makes Otani even more special, besides her being a bona fide ace, though, is that he's a pretty good hitter, too. When he isn't starting, manager Hideki Koreyama pencils him in as the DH or sometimes as an outfielder. So, so far this year, he's accrued 58 plate appearances, and... He is hitting a pretty good 308, 362, 654 with five home runs. This week, he went 4-12 with not one, 
but two home runs. So he's no Bartolo Colon, but you know what? That'll play. In other news, relief pitcher Keisuke Tanimoto left the game on Wednesday the 4th after being hit by a line drive in the knee. Tanimoto is an eight-year veteran, and he's been a mainstay in the fighters' bullpen for most of that time. Uh, this season, he's appeared in 11 games, and he pitched 8.2 innings to the tune of a 3.12 ERA. In a non-related move, pitcher Yuki Saito was added to the active roster after starting the season recovering from injury. Saito is also a veteran who spent his entire career at the fighters. Though he was a standout in college, serving as the ace of the prestigious Waseda University, which is the Japanese equivalent of, let's say, Vanderbilt, his NPB career has never really clicked and has been marred by ineffectiveness and injury. Uh, Manager said that Saito will pitch at the bullpen, but if he's effective, he might be used as a starter. So far this year, Saito's appeared in just one game, and it was a scoreless inning, though he did allow three hits. So, here at Amazing Avenue, we have the meme, love the Mets, love the Mets. Well, the official hashtag of the fighters just happens to be hashtag love fighters. So, closing our first official Amazing Avenue audio fighters update, love fighters, love fighters. Well, folks, that wraps up episode 185 of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you're enjoying this new format. We are still tweaking some things, making some changes, and the show is going to continue to evolve and grow over the next few weeks and months, and hopefully you guys are going to be along for the ride with us. You can check out all of our contributors for tonight's show on Twitter. Uh, let's start with our guest, Eno. You can follow him on Twitter at Eno Saris, E-N-O-S-A-R-R-I-S. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Kate Feldman is at Kate E. Feldman. Aaron York is at APY5000. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. Uh, Noel Purcell is at Nameless Ranger. And Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. S-Y-P-A. You can email the show once again, and please do, at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. And, of course, you can find us at AmazonAvenue.com, your SB Nation fan site for all things New York Mets. We have lots of wonderful contributors on there that I'm trying to find ways to bring onto the show and hopefully will be joining us quite soon. And we have something really special that we're going to end with this week. We've been talking a lot about uh, the Bartolo Colon home run with absolute uh, necessity with the thing that's on everybody's mind right now as a Mets fan. And uh, on the site on Sunday morning, we had a poem by Nick Titano called Bartolo at the Bat. Some of you might be aware of Casey at the Bat, a very, very famous poem involving baseball. I, I would say, without question, the most famous poem involving baseball. Uh, Nick posted this on the site And I really enjoyed it, so I asked him to do a reading of it for us. And so that's how we're going to close out the show today. So again, email the show, tell your friends about it, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. And we will be back next week with another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. There was no joy in Metville for the New York Nine that day. The game had gone on far too long. The sky was turning gray. DeGrom shut out the Braves for nine, the bullpen for ten more, but after 19 innings, the Mets had yet to score. 
The next frame started much the same, two outs and no one on. Then David Wright stepped to the plate and hit one that looked gone. The fans arose. Could this be it? The ball soared like a bird. But then it hit short of the wall and Wright slid into third. Conforto got an intentional pass. Ioannis walked as well. The force was on at any base, but only time would tell. The pitcher's spot was due up next. The bench used up today, except for one, the newest met, the kid from AAA. The umpire made the lineup change, the rook now in the game. The fans could sense a New York win. They cheered and called his name. The new kid sat stunned on the bench. A teammate said, don't linger. He jumped and ran to get a bat, then tripped and broke his finger. The manager had no one left. He yelled and threw his hat. But suddenly the Mets bench stirred as Bartolo grabbed a bat. He stepped out from the dugout and the city fans went wild. The pressure now was surely on. Bartolo simply smiled. He stepped into the batter's box, a helmet on his head. The catcher put down number one. The first pitch was dead red. Bartolo took a mighty cut. He missed and spun around. His helmet flew off as he fell and tumbled to the ground. The catcher laughed and helped him up. He dusted off his shirt. The second pitch was way outside and landed in the dirt. Bartolo took a healthy cut and missed it by a mile. The umpire tried hard not to laugh. He couldn't help but smile. Bartolo knew if he struck out, his loyal fans might boo. So at that moment, he resolved to try out something new. The pitch was thrown right down the pipe at just the perfect height. Bartolo simply closed his eyes and swung with all his might. The fans all heard the crack of the bat, an unmistakable sound. And then Bartolo opened his eyes as he stopped spinning around. The ball soared deep to center field. The outfielder gave pursuit. His teammates rose to take a look. The fans began to root. It cleared the fence and hit the apple. Bartolo tipped his hat. And as he passed the third base coach, he still carried his bat. He slowed down as he headed home and found his teammates grinning. Then Collins pointed at the plate where his helmet was still spinning. In all the years the Mets have played, the memories reign supreme. The miracle of 69 proved anyone could dream. From Cleon's shoe to Endy's catch, Mike's 9-11 home run, Santana's great no-hitter, McGraw just having fun. But for those fans who saw that game, one memory makes them shout, for they will never forget the day Bartolo hit one out.